listening to the podcast by CISD SOAS, the Center of International Studies and Diplomacy. Prosecuting rape as a war crime, with speakers Professor Christine Chinkin, Dr. Dan Plesch, and Ewan Lawson, chaired by Dr. Gina Heathcote. Brought to you by the Center for Gender Studies seminar series. This event was recorded on 19th November 2015. different types of initiatives around preventing uh, or responding to sexual violence and armed conflict, um, with some a specific uh, focus on the work that my colleague uh, Dan Pledge here, who's the director of the Centre for International Studies and Diplomacy, has done in looking back at the archives uh, in relation to the world, all kinds of commissions that were set up after World War II. Um, so my role is as chair, what we're going to do is, Chris um, is going to briefly introduce her centre at the LSE. I'm going to listen to some, both Dan and you, and talking about their research. Um, we'll have a short kind of panel discussion before opening it up to the floor for questions and answers. Um, so just by way of introduction to the rest of the panel, um, here is a, just next to me is Ewan Lawson, who is a current uh, doctoral student in the Centre for International Studies and Diplomacy where he's undertaking research on the development of international regimes to deal with sexual violence in conflict. Um, and I've talked to you about this working before, and I think what's uh, most interesting is this access to the archives and, and the role of the archives that he's engaged with in the development of his research. And he's uh, looking forward to hearing how it's going. It's been a while. <laughs> Um, uh, next to Ewan is uh, Dan Plesch, who is who leads uh, is the director of the SOAS Centre for International Studies and Diplomacy, a role he's had since 2007. Before this, he set up and led in Washington D.C. the American, the British American Security Information Council, which investigated the Pentagon's nuclear armaments programs. Uh, after 9/11, he was a senior fellow at the Royal United Services Institute. Uh, his work that we're going to listen to and talk uh, with him about today on sexual violence as a war crime is part of a larger project that he's undertaking that looks at the UN before the UN Charter, and he's written several books on this and has an ongoing project uh, with Professor Tom Weiss. Uh, next to Dan is Professor Christine Chinkin, uh, who is the director of the Centre for Women, Peace and Security at, at the LSE. Um, she is also um, a, a, a well-celebrated and well-known uh, feminist scholar of international law, uh, being one of the co-authors of seminal piece titled Feminist Approaches to International Law, so that my students in the room know what I'm talking about, um, and also co-author of the book uh, Boundaries of International Law, which is the only uh, uh, book-length study of feminist approaches to international law. She is also the author of many articles, both on international law broadly uh, and uh, feminist approaches to international law. Um, and recently uh, has taken up the role of the new Centre on Women, Peace and Security, or for Women, Peace and Security, uh, at the LSE. So I'm going to invite Christine to just tell us a little bit about the centre uh, and, and I guess its scope uh, and I think really its importance at this moment in time. Um, thank you, Christine. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, there's no reason to, is there? No. <laughs> Talk here. 
thanks, Gina. Um, I thought to have added long-term friend. Long-term <laughs> friend. <laughs> and what you're talking about, collaborator. We're currently <laughs> writing a feminist judgment um, together as a sort of... Um, Ad hoc panel of judges or something. Yeah, yeah. so um, collaboration, as you said. Um, just very, very briefly, um, Dan and you have both said that the fact that we have set up this centre at the LSC sort of resonates with the work that they are currently doing. And so I thought it would be nice to be looking at sort of archival work on um, issues of sexual violence and armed conflict and then um, sort of more contemporary, I suppose, where we are now with such issues. Um, so just two minutes on the centre. Um, it was created, uh, feels like forever ago now, but it was actually only, in fact, earlier this year, uh, February this year, um, essentially out of the foreign policy initiative that um, William Hague and Angelina Jolie Pitt um, started in May 2012 relating to prevention of sexual violence and armed conflict, PSVI as everybody calls it. PSVI was essentially around, on the one hand, prevention, and on the other hand, the issues of enhancing accountability, ending it um, in June last year, around prevention of sexual violence in armed conflict. And as part of that uh, global summit, I think that there was, on the one hand, very significant political awareness. Um, secondly, realisation of the gaps, the um, lack of systematic and um, holistic evidence base with respect to many of the issues around sexual violence and armed conflict. I think we all tend to think we know a lot about it. In fact, there's a, a large number of things we don't know about it. And coupled with that, then, well, what are the best approaches? towards um, securing accountability, ending impunity. Um, I think the global summit sort of had, had this big sort of worldwide uh, attention. I think there was then considerable concern that following the summit, instead of the summit being seen as a step along the way, the long-term political engagement, that it might be seen as the end in itself. And, and uh, William Hague was um, especially concerned about, I think, linking the policy agenda, um, foreign policy agenda, the extremely active, very important civil society movement relating to um, addressing issues of sexual violence and armed conflict and academic uh, type work. So the initiative for the centre very much came from William Hay. Uh, he went and talked to the director of the RC and you know, so on. And so we ended up with the centre. But the centre is not called PSVI, it's Women, Peace and Security. So the idea was to link the PSVI agenda with the broader agenda of the Security Council relating to Women, Peace and Security, which really commenced back in um, 2000 with Security Council Resolution 1325, which Gina, I think, has probably written more about than anybody else um, around. Um, there are pluses and minuses. And there are concerns, on the one hand, the plus, it brings women peace and security right up to the highest level of the UN, Security Council uh, policy. On the other hand, does it link it too closely to the Security Council, etc.? Is there a danger of getting co-opted and moving into that? So these are all issues um, that we have to deal with. I would just sort of finish this stage by just sort of saying, PSVI and women peace and security, they are each narrower and broader than the other. 
PSVI is broader, well, it's narrower in that it is focused very specifically on sexual violence and armed conflict, um, but it's broader in that it's sexual violence and gender-based violence against anybody in armed conflict, um, whatever sex, whatever gender identity, whatever age or other um, other intersectional um, characteristics that they may have. So it's a broad um, approach to respect the commission of sexual violence against anybody. Women, peace and security is gender-specific. Women, um, peace and security, but it's a much broader agenda. It's the broader agenda around the sort of four pillars of prevention, participation, protection and accountability, relief and recovery. And following the global study that came out um, so weeks ago, it's also broadened at least in at least in terms of um, not the Security Council, everybody else who's supporting the women, peace and security gender, um, issues around militarism, um, political economy, um, neoliberalism, etc. other aspects that feed into um, the, the um, continuation of gender-based harms in armed conflict. I'll leave it there. <laughs> the same point. Okay. I'm going to leap to my feet because I want to use the equipment. Not because I'm afraid of stage. Uh, first of all, I want to, to thank uh, Gina um, uh, and Christine uh, for uh, their participation this evening. Uh, Ewan uh, has to come because he's my student, so <laughs> drag him along. <laughs> um, also, to thank uh, the OAN, she's been uh, a tremendous help in uh, my research overall. And I would say that the work we've done would not have happened um, without the very strong participation of CISD students. And if any of you are at all interested, regardless of what part of SOAS or indeed any other part of London you might be in, are interested in getting more involved, um, perhaps using some of this material um, uh, in the way in which we think it might be useful or might be interesting to you just in its own right, then have a word with myself and, uh, and Leah afterwards. I should also say this may be the first uh, of our collaborative seminars between the, the centres, uh, but uh, June and I have another one in a couple of weeks' time, um, which looks at the question of how did gender equality get into the UN Charter in 1945? Who were the women who got it in, and what uh, does that mean for us today? Um, because in class we found last year that there were some unexpected answers to that question. Uh, so, um, you all probably have got this little handout, um, and I will mostly speak to this and then um, pop in and out of the, uh, this uh, website we have, which you can uh, get more information on. Um, now, at the top, this uh, says United Nations War Crimes Commission, um, a body which is usually only found in the uh, uh, legal or historical footnotes, um, and which until very recently uh, its archives were still sealed in New York. And this is a commission founded before the UN Charter as part of what we usually call the Allied effort against fascism, but which at the time was universally called the United Nations. And this was formed by 17 countries in the middle of the Second World War to create an international effort 
to uh, provide a judicial as well as a military response to Nazi aggression. And uh, while um, I was giving a, a lecture uh, on this uh, in The Hague at the Institute of Global Justice, and uh, one of the ICTY judges came up to me afterwards and said, well, it's all very interesting, and have you written more about it? This was a few years ago. And I said, well, no, there's a problem. I had a, a journal, a history journal, turn down an article because I was arguing that this was uh, overlooked. And they, one of the reviewers for this history journal said, how can you argue that it's overlooked? Because this organization produced its own official history in 1948, uh, edited by a, a, a judge of appeals in Britain. And this uh, is in all good libraries. Uh, and I'm afraid the judge just laughed and he said, this is terribly embarrassing, we didn't know anything about this commission. Uh, and there is something of the dissonance within academia <laughs> uh, and presentism and understanding of history that uh, speaks to this, uh, to this whole episode. Um, the, the commission as a whole, just to give a quick um, uh, thumbnail if I can, this is all a bit skewed over here. But, um, what we are taught about in general is the, uh, the blue sliver in this, uh, in this chart. Sorry if you have to crane around there. Um, which is 49 or so uh, trials, cases, before Tokyo and Nuremberg. Uh, and then, you know, since uh, the Cold War, there are some 184, getting on to 200 trials now. The Commission um, made prima facie judgments on 8,000 pre-trial dockets uh, concerning close to 40,000 individuals and military units and some 2,000, we know that at least 2,000 trials resulted in probably 20 odd jurisdictions around the world under its jurisdiction. Um, which is, we argued with the um, support now of the International Bar Association and others, other luminaries, uh, does represent a a new way of looking at international criminal law, a new paradigm, and a much larger and in many ways much stronger one than we are accustomed to build our work on, which is 40-odd cases uh, from World War II. Um, that that tradition is much bigger and richer than we uh, are led to believe. One part of that research, and my dead collaborator, Shanti Sattler, a former CISD student, and I, in looking at the material that we had prized from the United Nations, um, we first of all, somewhat of our surprise, came across a, uh, a case actually in the Far East which dealt with rape as a war crime. And our initial reaction was, oh, first of all, that's surprising, shouldn't have existed, how could that be? And then our immediate, well, so as conditioned assumptions came in oh well, this was probably just part of a post-colonial imperial operation and Japanese were being prosecuted what they'd, what they'd done to colonized women as a means of re-establishing the imperial power at the end of the war. And we had that discussion going on for a bit and then we turned the page and then we found a case in Poland. And then we found a case in Belgium and then we found a case in Yugoslavia and we saw that it was a much bigger picture. Um, and I'll just walk through this handout, if I might. Um, and uh, 
We'll just start with the Belgians, because there we are. They're, they're, these days, they're quite a politically correct nation at the heart of the European Union. And I think they and the other states have forgotten their role in this commission back in the 40s. Um, if you uh, hope your French is up to it, my mind can just about deal with this. Um, you'll see that uh, in terms of the requirement in this form, which you might find quite startling, it in a sense has a routine bureaucratic sense to it, such as might be used for a traffic ticket or something of the kind, in terms of the categories of crime listed and the serial numbers and so forth. But you see here that um, in the section on descriptions of the war crime, uh, it lists uh, both rape, um, the um, enslavement of women for false prosecution, prosecution and so on as being a crime both under international law and also under Belgian national law as a war crime. And if we look at the accused, uh, one sees typically of the uh, practice at the time uh, that it's uh, a colonel, the officers and the soldiers of a particular Nazi military unit. So command responsibility, collective responsibility and individual responsibility. Um, and you may or may not be pleased to know that uh, the named individual, uh, Willy Jobst, as uh, Leah found out through our searches, was in fact uh, convicted and indeed um, executed for other crimes at the time, uh, although not indeed for these ones. Um, so the fact that these were regarded as, if I can use the awful phrase, normal war crimes, not uh, requiring a category of uh, crimes against humanity or mass perpetration. The fact that this is a, uh, a series of offences where individuals and whole military units and commanders are deemed to be responsible, uh, and that these crimes are listed individually as um, crimes in their own right. They often, sometimes they're listed alongside you know, mass murder, torture, and the other fun and games of Nazi Europe. But on this occasion, they're pretty much listed in by certain standalone charges. Uh, but, which is very counterintuitive to how not only we think of the period and so on, but also in some of the uh, ways in which we are um, having to deal with these issues in politics and literature today. If you pop over the page, um, the other side of the page, um, the, the charge is here, and again, one speaks to what is considered criminal today, uh, are against uh, a number of specific um, military commanders and low-level commanders and unknown soldiers um, for an island off of uh, mainland Yugoslavia in the, at the height of the war uh, for a series of offences which include murder and pillage but I think it's interesting to say the attempted rape of um, a particular young female and again you know 
who cares, it was all a long time ago, but it, it's all, you know, the collateral damage of warfare. Um, one of the horrible phrases we have nowadays, you know, that it's a, a, it's a 21st century politically correct invention of Hollywood stars. This is all um, something that needn't be taken seriously, be taken seriously. And yet here we have, um, a year after the war, 1946, the Yugoslav State Commission bringing to an international body in London of 17 states a set of charges that is concerned with the attempted rape of a single woman, of a single young woman. Uh, that I think is, um, along with these other cases and 170 other uh, cases where we have the trial reports and the many cases which uh, we just have the charges, is I think salutary to the people that we have to engage with and to take this issue seriously today. Um, who would have us believe, as I say, that this is a marginal uh, issue um, when we consider um, crime today. It's clear from this practice that the 17 states on the commission, which include most members of the, many members of, who are now uh, members of the European uh, Union, um, not Russia, but China, United States, United Kingdom, India, uh, were all uh, making collective judgments, first of all, that these were international crimes at the time, and that uh, the individual cases brought to them met a, in English terms or Anglo-Saxon terms, met a prima facie standard uh, that there was a case to answer and on the basis of that uh, individual states went forward with their prosecutions. So this is a, and this was a process that they used on the whole, or all the other crimes that we're talking about um, that are dealt with in this, uh, in this, in this pie chart. Um, it's worth mentioning I think a number of other points about the way in which these cases were pursued and their relevance today. Um, first of all, I think what it means that we can take the Nullum Crimin argument with respect to um, Nanking massacres, uh, what went on in Cambodia, uh, Japanese comfort women, etc. And we can take the Nullum Crimin argument and throw it in the bin. It's perfectly clear that international state practice at the time from the mid-1940s, establishes these offences as international crimes and that they were prosecuted uh, all over the world, in Europe and in Asia. Um, I pause for a moment in brackets to say the reason that at the time uh, these were prosecuted um, with respect to Korea and also Taiwan, that under international law, Korea and Taiwan were Japanese national territory, and the states involved, particularly the United States and Great Britain, were adamantly opposed to breaking the Westphalian principle um, on any crime, and of course on crimes against humanity, we know as well. That was the only reason why uh, these actions were prosecuted in 
uh, let's say the Philippines or Hong Kong and mainland China, but not in um, not in the case of uh, uh, of Korea. A few other points that one has to deal with today in looking at these, and which I should offer to you as uh, tools of argument and advocacy. The first of all, it's uh, very clear that uh, prior a number of cases rule out the prior reputation of the women involved as being admissible in evidence on a number of cases. Um, secondly, that a physical coercion associated with the uh, acts are also ruled out as not being required uh, in all sorts of cases. Um, it was uh, on occasion, for example, I think in, uh, in Yugoslavia, prosecutions went ahead uh, on the basis that, well, the entire village was starving to death and uh, various other people had been killed shortly beforehand, um, and therefore there was no reason to expect a requirement for physical act, physical force at the time of the act. Um, standards of witness protection uh, were also, um, I think, quite high, partly also on the basis of prior reputation. Um, and as we've seen, uh, again, we didn't expect it, but we keep coming across cases where attempted rape is being prosecuted um, not just the act itself, which again was a further uh, surprise to us. So, um, all in all, um, we think that this uh, evidence, this data, um, provides um, a powerful uh, political reinforcement to trying to persuade uh, a large number of influential states today that these, they should take this issue seriously when we can demonstrate to them that um, they took it seriously 70 years ago. It's important in having those discussions because one can see that uh, this is not a, uh, an example of the alleged Western creation. These are crimes which are endorsed by India and China and prosecuted by these states and also by the Philippines in, in Asia. Um, and in detail, I would say that when it comes to an advocating whether or not particular uh, charges should be brought, one can make a, a strong argument that these offences are not should not be regarded as peripheral; uh, that they were clearly regarded um, on occasion as. Um, justifying prosecution by themselves rather than as part of a set of other offences. But I should end with a couple of, a couple of obvious um, caveats, I think. Um, first of all, uh, the fact that we have some cases and some prosecutions supported internationally does not in any sense mean that I or the rest of our team think that these were in any meaningful degree addressing the amount of such crimes that took place during the Second World War. Obviously not. Uh, nor uh, the fact that this commission dealt only with the crimes of the enemy 
does it uh, mean that um, offences were or were not prosecuted when carried out by the Allies? But I don't think that should get in the way of the importance of the cases. Um, and indeed it didn't at the time. Uh, one extraordinary, one of the many the counterintuitive things we discovered that in some of the subsequent trials at Nuremberg, uh, which Kevin Heller has done such wonderful work on, um, of our own law school, um, that some of the uh, prosecution arguments for uh, joint criminal enterprise against um, some of the major Nazi trials were partly based upon the fact that the Americans had themselves convicted an American soldier for standing guard while his fellow soldiers raped a civilian. And this case uh, appears in a number of the um, uh, prosecutions of uh, Nazis by Telford Taylor at Nuremberg, which is uh, a further uh, uh, evidence of the seriousness with which the uh, joint criminal enterprise issue was was uh, was taken out. Um, so that's what it is, and that's why we think it's important. And we hope that um, you can perhaps do us a favour if you tell us it's all a waste of time and we should go do something else. Um, that would be a great relief in some ways because uh, we have plenty else to do. Um, uh, but Christine and the uh, the rest of the people here may want to uh, uh, talk with us about how we can best deploy these tools to pursue these issues today and reinforce these issues. But I've prattled on long enough, and it's uh, now my great pleasure to hand over to you. Uh, good evening, everyone, and uh, uh, thanks for coming along. Um, I'm very conscious that sometimes you know, talking about research like this can feel very detached from the, the terrible realities of what we're actually talking about. And uh, I just want to say that, so for me, see, my overall interest in the subject has very practical roots. I, I served for 20 years in the, in the British military. Um, I worked a lot in international uh, training uh, environments. And particularly, I worked uh, in Africa. And uh, you know, one of the questions you find yourself asking is, you know, why does this keep happening? And what is it that we should be doing to, to try and stop it happening? And in particular, uh, one of the last <coughs> jobs I did a couple of years ago was I worked in the British Embassy in, in South Sudan, in Juba, South Sudan, prior to the, the current horrendous internal conflict. Uh, but I worked with the South Sudanese military, the Sudan People's Liberation Army as they're known, and we talked a lot about how we stop central violence in conflict. And, and one of the, you know, the obvious solutions is, is training and education. So the International Committee of the Red Cross runs some absolutely fabulous packages, get people in for a couple of days, explain to them why it's wrong, legally, morally, ethically, um, and then pack them, you know, particularly commanders, pack them away back out of the units again. And I was very struck about the role of legal processes in deterring and discouraging uh, such events. And 
Interestingly, uh, at the time, I was talking to the SPLA's uh, senior uh, administrator, and he revealed that they had actually prosecuted five soldiers uh, for rape in Jongle, in the east of the country. Um, successfully prosecuted them, brought evidence, put them through a military court. It's absolutely fantastic. You, know, you need to tell people about this, because the justice has no real impact broader impact other than those five individuals and of course the victim unless you tell your story and it's a, it's a great story you've got to tell you know you the SPLA a much maligned organization a guerrilla army trying to transform itself have, have prosecuted five of your own soldiers for, for rape uh, and sexual violence and he said oh, I can't possibly do that and why can't I possibly do that well because it makes us look bad so these very practical challenges of how do you how do you get people um, in, in militaries to really engage with the issue? You know, plenty of people say they understand it. How do you get them to deal with it? So that's you know, part of where my, um, you know, my practical interest comes from. And um, the reason I'm in a suit is because I'm actually my day job, um, although I'm a part-time PhD student and a part-time member of campus teaching staff, uh, is as a senior research fellow at Brucey, as indeed Dan was a number of years ago. And one of the areas we're looking at at Brucey is on um, peacekeepers and sexual violence. Um, of course, our new chairman is, is William Hague, and therefore you know, there is a, a renewed interest amongst the staff at Brucey in matters PSVI. Um, but also, more broadly, uh, this week I was talking to representatives of the Kenyan government uh, about their concerns about the International Criminal Court and the direction of travel of that. So all of that is just a little bit of, sort of background story to say, so why does this middle-aged white man uh, appear amongst you to talk about sexual violence and conflict? Well, uh, part-time uh, study over the years, mainly in history, and you know, looking back as far as uh, what I would call the uh, British counterinsurgency campaign in the Highlands of Scotland in the late 18th century, you see prosecutions by the British Army of their own people for rape. As I've you know, worked through my studies over the years, I see this coming back again and again. And when I was fortunate enough to be introduced to Dan about three years ago now, um, and to come to understand you know, this fascinating archive of the UNWCC, I thought, well, there's something quite interesting here. And where I've ended up is in many ways less about those very interesting, specific cases that Dan is talking about, and more about where that fitted in to you know, how international regimes have developed, because there is an orthodoxy that says there are no international regimes to deal with crimes of sexual violence until 1992 and the Yugoslav Tribunal. So where does something like the UNWCC fit into this into the structure? And I, I would point those of you interested in the subject at a, at a really interesting book uh, written by uh, Tuba Enel, uh, forgive me Tuba if I mispronounce your name, uh, but Tuba Enel wrote a book called Looting and Rape in Wartime, um, which is written from a, a comparative approach of those, those two crimes uh, as war crimes, uh, and it looks at the normative conditions that lead uh, pillage, theft in wartime, to be dealt with you know, to, for a regime to develop in a fairly linear way over a number of years and that, that for rape to not follow that same linear pattern. 
And as I read this, and you know, around the same time as I was starting to look at the archive of, the, of UNWCC, I realized that I think there's only half the story in, in Tuba's book. And that her focus on particular on diplomatic processes, the Hague and Geneva conferences, you know, big conferences which are about limiting excess in war, uh, and, and the focus on explaining why sexual violence doesn't feature as perhaps it, you know, as much as perhaps it might do in these conferences is only, as I say, part of the story. And when you look at the broader UNWCC work, because what Dan very cleverly didn't do was talk about all the all the committee papers, which are the uh, you know, the less exciting stuff than the case papers. The committee papers, you see the issue of sexual violence um, raised regularly, along with you know other war crimes. It is given exactly the same priority as, as as other as other war crimes. And so the archive, I think, highlights the significance of of, of rape. And when you look into the archive deeply, there's references back to the Paris peace process <coughs> after the First World War, the Versailles Treaty, as it's more commonly known. And in there, you see uh, rape and enforced prostitution specifically listed as war crimes. There's a plan at the end of, of World War One to, to set up an international court, you know, the predecessor of what we have in the Hague. It never comes to fruition. But all of the reporting is there. And this is reflected back on by the UNWCC. So there's a broader history here. You know, this is not just about these big international tribunals. And then what the UNWCC then, as I say, goes on to do is demonstrate that before 1992, rape and broader sexual violence is very much considered as an international crime, albeit that perhaps the majority of the prosecutions, well, no, without doubt, the majority of the prosecutions are actually undertaken in national jurisdictions by a variety of courts, by military courts, by uh, civilian courts, and a variety of different forms. But you know, across, as Dan has rightly pointed out, across the globe, you know, from the Far East to Norway. But we've got this really bizarre kind of uneven development. You know, it just sexual violence. You know, it, it's, it's there's a, a vague reference in the Hague process at the end of the 19th century. Then it's you know right up front, it's fifth and sixth on the uh, rape and enforced prostitution, fifth and sixth on the list of war crimes at the end of the Paris Peace Treaty, a list that's 20 to 30 long. It's up front at the end of the Second World War, you know, to be prosecuted uh, through the UNWCC. And I would also point out that at Tokyo, um, it's often suggested that there's no reference to sexual violence in either Nuremberg or, or Tokyo. There is at Nuremberg, you have to work hard to find it sometimes. But at Tokyo, uh, Abraham Shita is prosecuted um, for command responsibility for a range of offences which include sexual violence. So why have, and then we get to Geneva, post-war, the next sort of big conference, and it kind of drops off the agenda again. You know, hence, um, you know, William Hague's interest in raising the status of sexual violence in the Geneva uh, process. So what I'm doing, as I say, is I'm going to look at, at why we have this uneven development. Uh, I'm going to look, uh, you know, both as a historian, so looking at the, at the archives, but also um, using some IR theory, um, and in particular looking at constructivist approaches. Uh, how did people see themselves who were involved in these processes uh, at that time? And indeed, uh, feminist approaches. And then be based around these uh, four key events, the um, Hague, process, Paris after the end of the First World War, UNWCC and all of the national trials that follow, to make global, um, 
including Nuremberg and, and Tokyo Big Trials, um, and then latterly uh, Geneva. So that's what we're looking at. Um, I think there's, there's quite a lot to, to get through there. Where I am at the moment is I'm starting to look at the Hague. I'm only a part-time PhD student. Taking me a lot longer than I thought it would. But I think there's a lot there, and, and certainly you, know, you can find me on the Sales Web if anyone wants to talk to me about it. Um, I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff, and potentially some smaller projects that would fall out of it. Thank you. Right, so thank you, everyone. I mean, it, it, I'm sure that the audience have got lots of questions both on the potentialities of the archive itself as well as this specific kind of engagement with the archive. I'm going to invite Christine to, to open uh, with some, some, maybe some discussion points or, or questions. Okay. Um, well, I clearly do not know anything near as much about the whole project as both of the former speakers. Um, so I'm just going to sort of throw out a few sort of questions and comments as a sort of discussion of this. Um, just as a sort of immediate response, how many women were on the Crown Commission? Uh, at the start, none. Of course, the secretaries. But by the end, um, in the post-war period, uh, the Danes, the, uh, the Dutch, and the French all had uh, female commissioners for a period of a year or more. Leah, did you think of anyone? Is that about right? I'll look it up. Norwegian maybe were as well. The Norwegian. Yeah, so it's. The usual suspects of that. Anyway, something else that's really struck me recently, you mentioned the case of a intended rape of a single woman and issues of sexual violence, standalone crimes. And it just struck me that we don't get another case of a rape or attempted rape, rape in fact, of a single person until we come to the Forensia case um, before the ICTY. We don't get another case of standalone sexual violence unaccompanied with by other crimes until the project case, Kuna um, again in the ICTY. I can't remember how the date to be, but there's somewhere between 95 and 98 um, within the ICTY. And I think that's quite an interesting um, contrast of itself. Um, as a general point, I don't think any history is wasted. Um, I think that you know, always we ignore history uh, at our peril. And I think this is actually part of a wider project looking at history of international law in general, um, sort of many aspects of um, international law that have been forgotten or have been lost are being re-excavated um, at the moment. But, um, so my comments are really based around an article, but was it Dan and you wrote together? Uh, Dan and, and uh, two colleagues oh, right. at the American University, okay. which I've um, no, stuck up. <laughs> so, so, uh, so rather than, well, as well as yes. today's comments. But um, just the thinking about it, just raise a number of, sort of questions um, to me. So I think three questions I really want to just sort of raise and perhaps speculate on some answers. Um, you and you've just been talking about the uneven progress and so on. Um, I came to issues around sexual violence and armed conflict in the 1990, 1991, 1992 sort of period when feminist international lawyers generally were being mobilised or mobilising ourselves um, to try and bring this all onto the agenda. And over and over again, what we were told was 
This was the forgotten crime. If you look back in 1902, the conference is on the forgotten crime of international law, or the silence about, there's a famous article in the ICQ, do you want to articles? And the ICLQ is the silence, why the silence um, around um, gender crimes. And so I think one of the interesting questions is why? You know, why was the silence? And it seems to me there's sort of two things going on. There's the general silence about the War Crimes Commission in general, but there's also the particular question about silence around issues of prosecutions for sexual violence and so on. And I was just thinking of a parallel with that. I don't think it's only the uneven legal development. Some of you may have read The Woman in Berlin, The Diary. There's a book that came out. It's a diary of a woman who is in Berlin as the Soviet troops are approaching in May 1945. And essentially it's her diary of as the Soviet troops come in, the horrors of them um, take place through to some weeks um, afterwards. Now, apparently the diary was reasonably well known in the immediate um, time when it was written. It vanishes in the early 1950s. It ceases to be um, available. It doesn't re-emerge until after she dies. It's found as part of her estate. Uh, again, I can't remember the exact dates, but sometime you know, in the last 10 years or so. So it's silent for, again, nearly 50 years. And um, so thinking again you know, what was going on, why was there this general silence around issues with respect to rape, sexual violence of women? The comfort women, again. Uh, from it's known about totaling in 1945-1946, MacArthur commissioned a report about the comfort women. It's absolutely fully you know, documented at that time. Again, it doesn't re-emerge until around 1990 and so. So there's a sort of general silence, not just in the legal domain, but more generally around these types of crimes. Um, speculation, that's all sort of, I haven't done legal research. It seems to me there's possibly two um, possible answers, as well as the, um, what was clearly as Cold War politics, clearly in the Far East, you talked about the possibility that it was a sort of in colonial, you know, sort of uh, prosecuting the Japanese. But shortly after that, of course, those countries are particularly going into nationalist-type debates, independence, that takes over, and the sort of classic position of women in nationalist movements being very much at the forefront of being told to keep women's issues off the agenda. So you get all of that sort of type discussion. But I'm um, just thinking again particularly about the woman in Berlin aspect. Um, I think it's two aspects that are interesting. One is, I think there was a reluctance to face on the part of many of the um, victorious or otherwise men what their women had done or had gone through during the war. And there's a section in the book um, where basically the woman decides that the best way of protecting herself is to find a high-up Soviet commander, um, as high as possible, who will essentially, okay, she will um, have sex with him on the basis that that's likely to protect her from widespread random rape across the board. And she says to herself, what does this make me? Am I now yeah, a prostitute? Is this forced prostitution? What am I doing here? And I think that you, know, you raised in the article uh, issues of prosecution of forced prostitution. And I think that started going very very difficult questions about what was actually happening. And I don't think that 
in the sort of post-war, that there was a willingness to actually think through issues about where does forced prostitution, what we might call today transactional sex, where does it hit collaboration? Now, all of these very narrow boundaries as to where does the actual criminal aspect of it come in. I think those are very, very difficult questions. And I think there is a, um, a desire not to face, uh, face up to them in many ways. And um, then there's the, again, coming back to women in Berlin, there's the, um, the guy who comes home that they're living in a bombed out uh, apartment block. And the guy comes home and is clearly, again, representing attitudes that are going on. Um, he can't face at all the fact that uh, she is willing, in inverted commas, to have sex with Soviet forces, but he's more than willing to eat the ham that she gets um, as a consequence of that. And again, some very difficult questions that were having to be faced if these issues are really thought through. And I think it doesn't go with the um, post-conflict victory on the one hand and the other, all of the other debates that are going on, this issue about oh, where were women, I think it's perhaps just too hard in many ways and so it gets um, submerged. Total speculation you can tell me I'm completely and utterly wrong but it does seem to be interesting that we get the reflection of what's happening legally in other um, contexts as well. Um, I've said already politics and so on uh, I think the second question, though, that is interesting is what do we lose? What do we lose? And I'll come back to legally. What do we lose by this silence, by not recognising the prosecution of these crimes at this time? We clearly lose legal precedence. I think that's very much what you've been um, referring to, Dan. So that in the 1990s, when the cases were first coming back up for first the ICTY, the ICTR, Sierra Leone um, Special Court, um, there was a feeling of having to start from scratch yeah, on the whole legal argument around many of these issues. Um, legal precedent would have been very much easier. <laughs> it could be available and could have used legal precedent. But I think, again, um, there was very strong around the night, and that seems sort of quite extraordinary now, but 92, 1993, there was very strongly this argument that it can't be done. I mean, I can remember standing up in conferences, you know, workshops, what have you, at that point, when we were strongly arguing for the inclusion of rape as a war crime, rape as a crime against humanity, etc., and the statute of the ICTY, ICTR, and being told absolutely seriously by committed international criminal lawyers, you simply can't have international trials of this sort. You won't get the evidence. There are too many other difficult issues. Um, victims will not come forward and give evidence. How are we going to actually um, make you know, serious criminal trials on the basis of proper evidence, etc., um, when there are so many other crimes as well? And I think if, if, you know, if this had been available, we could have said, of course it can be done. It was done. You know, there are absolutely no problems about it. And I think it was a strong myth that this was an unprosecutable crime at the international criminal level. And I think that the, a great deal was lost uh, by doing that. Um, further, I think that it is the cause or effect, it's part and parcel of the marginalisation of women's human rights in general. And that women's human rights are always something that are sort of set aside, whether we're talking about in terms of 
international criminal law, whether we're talking about human rights in general, and that, um, therefore, let's deal with more important things first, uh, and that women's human rights aspects are less important. So then my third question is, well, what changed? Um, you know, the William Hague Initiative and so on, today, in 2015, um, sexual violence and armed conflict is quite high. At least it certainly was in 2014. I think one of the issues today is whether we can maintain it there. But it's certainly quite high on the international um, foreign politics uh, agenda. So what changed around the 1990s? Um, I think, again, there are quite a number of different answers. Again, you know, you can probably tell me other ones. Um, women began to break the silence. Um, the comfort women are a very good example of that. Um, around the 90, late 1980s, early 1990s, um, women who had lived pretty much in silence in affording situations in many cases since 1945, they're growing older. They don't want to die without anybody ever knowing the story. And so there begins to become a, um, a, a, a yeah, beginning to tell the story of those people. Very important, you mentioned the career situation. There was very important research carried out, uh, published in 1988 by a Korean historian, which essentially, again, produced um, the story of the comfort women. Um, of course, Korea by this time is now independent from Japan, so it gets taken up in foreign policy sort of type angle um, between particularly Korea and Japan and then other countries in Asia. So I think there's a sort of conjunction of women coming forward and coming forward precisely at the moment that it seemed to be happening again in former Yugoslavia and the parallels between the form of detention that's now called sexual slavery but wasn't so much at that point and what was being occurring in former Yugoslavia at that time. Plus the conjunction of um, the growth of the global women's movement, particularly following the 1985 Nairobi Conference. The Nairobi Conference very much um, was a pivotal moment in terms of global networking um, of women and realisation of violence against women in general as being an issue of violation of women's human rights and violence against women in armed conflict as being part and parcel of that. And so with that global networking movement that begins around 1985, plus then, let's say, sort of historical research beginning, plus women coming out, plus the um, coincidence of um, former Yugoslavia and patterns again of women being detained essentially for sexual slavery, I think sort of all led to a momentum um, that led to the ensuring the inclusion, certainly of rapist crime against humanity, in the um, 1993 ICTI statute. Rape is not included as a war crime. Again, had your research been available, I think it clearly would have been. Um, because the argument was it hadn't been included as a war crime in the Lund-Kriemer argument. It could have been there. It could have been put there at that point. It only comes in through jurisprudence, prosecutorial policy, etc. Um, as we carry through. Um, it does still need to get a big upsurge of interest at that point. And, of course, it does still beg the question about where you started, 
the continuity of the commission of the crimes and the need again for further political agendas um, today. Yes, there's been jurisprudence in the international level, um, much less than we would have actually liked in many ways. And I think again, perhaps one of the biggest importance of your research is that the argument today is that we need the domestication of the international criminal law, particularly the Roman statute, into national jurisdictions. And again, um, concerns of national jurisdictions are not willing, able or willing to take up the international demands. Again, this could be an indication that yes, you can. And you know, sort of why not doing so? I think the other, I haven't talked too long, uh, the other just general point just to make is the extremely important issue about modes of accountability. Modes of accountability is one, it remains, I think, one of the most difficult areas with respect to prosecution. Individual criminal liability of the actual perpetrator can often be extremely difficult. Um, gang rape, um, situation of armed conflict, absolute terror, people are going to be able to identify in court however many years later who was the actual perpetrator. So the importance, therefore, of modes of liability that are either command um, liability or joint criminal enterprise. Again, both are quite controversial and contested. And again, showing that it could be done earlier, um, I think, could be quite important. Um, just as a final thought, those trials, of course, took place before the development of human rights. And there may well be further difficult issues today that didn't arise in those trials relating to the rights of the accused and the importance of um, ensuring trials compatible with human rights standards. And I think that is one of the issues that um, tend to face today. Those are just a few thoughts. Thanks, Jonathan. Responding to another one, should we open to the floor and get some questions? Um, I could, I think I just really, I think you and I probably would uh, agree. First of all, thank you so much for your uh, engagement. I think we want to know how, in a sense, how we can hand the baton on um, so that it can be used much more broadly, partly in the way which we and Christine have, have described. Um, and I think that, to our mind, is reason for having this evening. We are going to have a, s a session here with the Human Rights Council people in Geneva in February, and our students will be engaged in that when we are when we're there in mid-February and the extent to which we can build momentum from November to February so that we get uh, use that as a further point of engagement with uh, advocates and policymakers and officials would be would be great uh, to see what we can do in that uh, uh, in terms of the next two or three months but I think we're happy to take questions and also as I'm particularly concerned to um, as we were hand over the battle. <laughs> okay, great. Let's up the back. So, uh, what, what I think we really need is an independent standard uh, which informs how these kinds of crimes can actually be actioned for investigation. I think the comments that both this two of you made really don't provide us with any reason for believing there is such a standard. Uh, I mean, to give you an example, you know, the atomic bombings in Nagasaki and uh, Hiroshima. 
There was no you know, war crimes trial into that. During the actual Tokyo trials, one of the judges continually reverted back to those uh, bombings, and he was ruled out of court. You know, um, in the, the Rus Russell Tribunal, you know, it was kind of abandoned effectively from where it was due to take place in London, it ended up, I think, in, in, in Stockholm. You know, uh, there was no investigation into the war crimes that were committed, the atrocities that were committed in, in uh, Vietnam. If you take the recent wars that we've had, um, there was an Australian embedded uh, anthropologist who was a filmmaker who was embedded into the US military. She became unembedded as a result of what she documented in, in taking place in Afghanistan. Uh, those crimes were actually sexual crimes that she documented, sexual crimes against e elderly tribal male leaders. And, you know, as far as I can tell, there's been absolutely nothing into that. So, really, it, it's good what you document, but the real issue is how it's going to be actually in the face of the kind of competing interests of power. Mm. You know, how are we going to resolve this? That's a $64,000 question. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, if it's not documented at all, there isn't even a hope of doing so. Yeah. So documentation, development of the legal, yeah, development of the normative standards that um, such actions are illegal and constitute international crimes. If it's not even uh, accepted as that first starting point, there isn't even a hope. Yeah, so, so that isn't clearly as well, a first step. But, but, yeah, no, I mean, geopolitical, uh, geopolitics and power at the end of the day but is going to always stop international and domestic trials. Can I just want to say, I, I think, it, I think, I think it's, you could take the view, uh, it's always terrible, it's going to carry on being terrible, therefore we might as well just give up and not bother. Or... Alternatively, you can say until we've got some, you know, unique and perfect standard to apply and all the politics to go with it, then we can't do anything. Or you can say, and I'm having to write about this in the continuity now. Or I would say that the past has value in showing that this is a continuous struggle, and uh, one doesn't give up. I think on the idea, well, certainly. I don't, uh, on the idea of having society and law and the crime of murder, because murder takes place despite the crime of murder, and on occasion the murder is carried out by the police, uh, and on occasion uh, supported by the judiciary. That, to my mind, is no reason to give up on the crime of murder. Uh, and the same with this, this is a continuity. And the value is to say, well, actually, there are, yes, politically suppressed uh, all sorts of politically suppressed cases from this era that by s siding with the people who prosecuted them in those days uh, and whose work was suppressed and honouring their work we can strengthen our own work today that I think is the opportunity and the challenge Can I come back in with another one as well you mentioned the Russell Tribunal I do think that civil society action is enormously important in this way um, so I, I was involved in a um, women's tribunal with respect to the comfort women. We held it in Tokyo 
um, against the wishes of the Tokyo government with um, Tokyo military people sort of outside. Okay, it doesn't actually have legal effect. It does have quite a strong um, public and um, accountability in a wider sense type approach. And there were these tribunals following the Iraq um, conflict, which again, you know, we will all say that the major, um, those most involved in Iraq haven't been in any way held to account. I think civil society actions are important. Maybe we should get, get some well. other people in as well yeah. in the discussion. Yeah, sorry. Uh, Gina, you should. Uh, yeah. The other one is the uh, Asia Pacific uh, People's Tribunals as well, which were in relation to Cambodia. And should we get several people in? So, yeah, so there was a question here, and then I'm gonna, there was another one. Yeah, I'll take Richard, so two, two a couple. Yeah. Hi, thanks for this. Um, so I have a bunch of things I could say, but I'll just, just throw out one publication that has to do with history, but also political uses of history. Um, and so I happen to be working, you mentioned um, a woman really in Berlin, I happen to be doing a historical project about um, Russian rapes in Berlin in right. the Second World War. Um, and I've interviewed um, several of these women who are now quite elderly in the global. Um, and so just to talk about a bit of the historical context in Germany. So what's interesting about the so-called unsilencing of the German rapes, right? So talking about that context specifically, which started um, again in the beginning of the 90s and then sort of continued over the last 25 years, um, is that it coincides with a really interesting right-wing political debate within Germany about the significance of um, the so-called expulsion, right, of ethnic, ethnic Germans from East Prussia. Um, which was sanctioned in the war and during which most of these rapes, sort of large portion of them, actually took place. And so the political narrative that's told by many of these women who come to the fore and are part of the discussion in German society now is actually to make their rapes part and parcel of what they see as the larger crime of expulsion, which they don't see as being having been recognized at all as a crime against humanity or war crime. So there's a very dangerous, I would suggest, right-wing politics yes. aligned with these stories. Yeah. That might, so if you could just comment, perhaps, on that and how that plays into the larger activist project that has to do with prosecution and so-called mm -hmm. historical unsilence. What do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, just a, just a brief point again on a woman in Berlin. I've read the diary. I'd be interested to know whether following the division of Germany, she found herself in the east or the west because it is a fact that at that time, the different armies had different standards. What in the, what in the Soviet Red Army was regarded as a perk of war, got a free poll in the Netherlands shop. And I want you, so I wonder whether part of the opportunity created in the 1990s was the fall of the Iron Curtain, the end oh, yeah. of Soviet rule. During the, 19, during the 1950s in East Germany, you did not criticize the Soviet liberators. You just didn't. Uh, in the 1990s, you see the end of that. You see the Soviets are no longer the political masters, and people can now talk. And I wonder to what extent that fed into these stories coming to the fore, and of course, creating, uh, creating an opportunity for a more universal standard of military conflict uh, conduct that we can use in other regions. So, what your comment on that? Thank you, Susie. I was just thinking that 
talk about how this information can be used. I know in the United States, especially in the last couple of years, there's been a lot about, you know, with the change in the military, there being so many women, there being, you know, rape, raping fellow soldiers, you know, both male and female, and there being documentary films around that, and a lot of that being done with impunity because of the, the, the jurisdiction within the military. I know Australian General came out and had a video that went kind of public about how he was addressing it within the Australian military, and there's been stuff touched upon in Britain here. But I think if somehow this can get even through to, you know, our, our large standing armies at the moment of saying, you know, these were taken as crimes against individuals, you know, in the 1940s to try and help bolster where, where feminism is pushing this at the moment. I know in the U.S. military, they committed, you know, they appointed a woman who's responsible for trying to address this, and there was reaction against it by her solution was to post posters about how women should go, women soldiers should go like two by two to the bathroom together to avoid being raped. So I was interested with your Red Cross programs of, you know, looking at current conflict situation, but how do we get this to say, addressing current standing armies to try in that preventative point that you kind of talked about with your center of how do we stop this with getting this into soldiers and recognizing that there's going to be consequences, but let's try and stop it before. So. Thank you. I was going to start by saying, um, I think the point about um, telling stories is really important. Um, in terms of creating the conditions for a greater understanding of the extent of the problem and um, an understanding of the impact of that on individuals. And I, and I was very struck um, in terms of this idea that it's always about the, um, the losers in the conflict who are prosecuted. Uh, there was a, a book published um, in the last couple of years, forgive me, I can't even remember the name, also all the time, the book, but it's about the American army in France during World War II. Um, and um, it's a fascinating book. Um, but here for the first time, pretty much the first time, you have an author who is saying, guess what, the conduct of the US Army in France, so against allied women, you know, was reprehensible. Okay. Um, and in particular, um, there's another dimension to this particular uh, set of circumstances in that when there is prosecution, in a lot of cases, it's the prosecution of black soldiers not the prosecution of white soldiers. So not only you know, is there a, uh, you know, an issue around not dealing effectively with sexual violence, on the margins of conflict, there's an issue around them putting the blame in a particular location. Uh, but the important thing about that book for me is that that book is published. And you know, there needs to be, a, 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 and one of the things that's fascinating about it is the extent to which American military propaganda, indeed <coughs> civilian propaganda, sexualized France, both as a nation and, and, and their women, um, giving soldiers an expectation in a way of what they're going to see. Excuse behavior, but you start to understand how these things uh, can happen. So, genuinely, I, I think whilst nothing that Dakar and I are doing. We don't have any expectation this changes the world tomorrow. Of course it doesn't. But it starts to provide uh, a dialogue, a discourse, that perhaps hasn't taken place before. And I think the discourse around misconduct by, um, by staggering standing armies is an entirely appropriate discourse to have. Um, 
the internal issue is, you know, within armies is, is, is a, you know, a problem, but I don't think it's on the same scale as when you know, certain armies are in the field, and it's those field conditions that create certain conditions, I think. Um, I want to come back on a point Christine made uh, about kind of there wasn't human rights then. Um, and that isn't the way it appeared at the time. That's interesting. Um, very largely, in the, in the, amongst the Allied countries, the political proposition was that the war was being fought for human rights. Yeah, and that you find that in the political declarations of the leaders and that these were uh, issued because they resonated with the publics and because they were designed to give people the uh, or in moral encouragement <coughs> to get into the fight. And that certainly the commission in its uh, neglected, they produced a report for the United Nations in 1948, uh, which was classified until 1980, and I think we're the only people to have read, which we have on our website, uh, which is the implications for human rights of the war crimes trials at the end of World War II. And this is a 400-page study, a third of which is devoted to the rights of the accused. I recommend it to you. <laughs> and uh, so this was, this was integral to the self-perception of a very large part of the Allied publics and leadership, that this is what differentiates us from the bad guys. Uh, and that's why we're fighting. You know, we're not fighting for a renewed nationalism. We're, a few, we're fighting for higher standards. And actually, what we've found in this is that uh, war crimes charges were being filed by the resistance forces in the whole of occupied Europe and being sent to London for consideration in very large numbers while the occupation was still underway. That while, you know, the image we have, yes, there's collaboration, there's resistance, and resistance is, you know, about uh, guns being parachuted from the sky and trains being blown up, and we've all seen the movies uh, of that, that part of that also is the development of war crimes charges um, against the occupiers, and this is seen as part of, you know, a defense of standards. And so that come the end of the war, you see uh, you know, very large majorities for left-wing, left-of-centre uh, governments coming from the population pursuing human rights agreements. Um, and I think one of the comparisons we make when we talk about how it's been lost, the, the one word is McCarthyism. <coughs> that there was a very strong pro-German, anti-communist wing within the United States, um, which is unfashionable to talk about, even during the war and that Franklin Roosevelt and his allies kept it at bay throughout the war, but afterwards it came roaring back. They, and in a sense, the political ancestors of Sarah Palin uh, and their like were Sarah Palin on steroids. You know, and the, the infamous remark of Secretary of War Stimson is we can't support crimes against humanity in terms of prosecution against German Jews by the Germans because of the implications for lynch mobs in the South will then be held liable for the lynchings. <laughs> and he says as much at the time. Um, 
I didn't say I was speculating. But what I was really thinking about, uh, as much as anything else, is what you didn't get just purely on the time scale. I mean, it has to be the case, the time scale of the crimes, you're, the uh, trials you're talking about, is these years of intensive investigation, evidence gathering, argumentation, etc., that we're seeing in the international criminal trials today. I mean, the trials today are taking, you know, how long did it take the first trial before the ICC? 10 years or so. And so clearly, whether it's the human rights standards or quite what it is, there clearly is now a, I'm not sure if it's a demand or um, something that's sort of grown up, but this incredibly long, le excessive legalism, I think I would actually I, call it, I would more than anything else, I would agree. which clearly what? couldn't happen to those, because of the time scale yeah. you're talking about. But, but what's yeah. interesting is that the acquittal rate, the overall acquittal yeah. rate, um, across all these thousands of cases, is at about 15%, uh, which is about the same acquittal rate as the ICTY. Yeah. So it isn't, on yeah. the face of it, yeah, we're not looking at a system of kangaroo courts. Yeah, it's interesting, yeah, just to, to write, I think, to delve into that talk. You know, and I mean, it's part of, isn't it, one of the major criticisms of international criminal law today, that it, you know, it, it's the ICC is almost sort of self-destructing because of this incredibly long um, process that it's um, going through. Um, you two, oh, you two have left. Um, I, both of the comments, um, I don't know enough about the sort of detailed um, politics of uh, Berlin, but I would make sort of more general comment with both of them, which is I think that it shows how issues of women's human rights, and in the particular context we're talking about, um, sexual violence against women, can very easily get enmeshed in, even co-opted by other agendas, and becomes instrumentalized, in, becomes used. And I think that both of the um, two comments that were made um, illustrate um, that problem. And we've seen it sort of more recently um, with um, issues in Afghanistan, for example, where part of the um, raising of sort of popular support for the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001 on the one hand, clearly it was 9-11, but on the other hand, the issues around the Taliban's treatment of women was used as an additional factor for saying, you know, we must go in and get rid of this dreadful regime. And yet suddenly when there becomes issues that maybe a deal has to be made, somehow that goes back off the agenda again. And I think we see that you know, it's, it's somehow always seems to be something that is available for political negotiation. And or for political, what, what you were talking about, I think, was for political highlighting other issues you know, within it. And I think that that is something that we'd keep on seeing as well, that perhaps feeds mm -hmm. in, in various ways. Okay, so a couple yeah, more questions. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> okay, well, um, this is sort of builds off what you were saying about the prosecution of black soldiers being at the armed forces, but then it builds on what you were just saying. I've got a slight advantage over everyone else because I've been working in this archive for quite a bit now. And so I can refer to things that other people don't have, which is a bit unfair, but we do it anyway. You've teaching us. A lot of the cases, when I was drawing up that list of 170 that Dan was talking about earlier, they seem to be against specific groups. And so in France, way more cases than I'd expect were against the Azeri Battalion, the Caucasus Division, the Indian Legion. 
and then which all volunteer or SS movements from Asia. And then in Greece, the Greeks prosecute more offences by, by Bulgarians than by the Germans and Italians put together. And then in, uh, there's a lot of eagerness to prosecute Japanese war crimes, although as Dan said, that's a bit more understandable because of what's going on and who's actually there to be prosecuted. And I've got no doubt that these volunteers did commit a lot of sexual violence, and especially because they're, they're, sort of, they're volunteers, they're sort of gathered together from whatever axis areas the Nazis have gone into, and then sent to somewhere a continent away. But it does seem that the crimes committed against victims by German troops mm. are understated. And so this, to some extent, those victims are failed because mm. they're not by the strange other. And then, showing it back into the present day, you sort of see a similar thing in, with these instrumentalisation of rape, especially with regards to race on Libya. Because there were the, I don't know if anyone remembers it, but there was those rumours that, oh yes, well, Gaddafi has trained up rape gangs of black sub Saharan African yeah. soldiers mm-hmm. and mercenaries. And in the end, I think Vassiuni, or I think I think that's his name, went and did one of the biggest yeah, investigations said, yeah. I found the evidence of rape was happening, but not of this sort of this very specialised sort that was being described, and that was leading to pretty much pogroms against black Africans in Libya. And so again and again you see this thing where sexual violence seems the sorts of cases that get prosecuted and there's a selectivity towards the other in it. And so even within this underreporting, both within the criminal tribunals or in the unions of WC, where only one in a thousand cases is where it gets to the commission, there's a sense of selectivity they only it gets instrumentalised in order to deal with certain sorts of crimes, certain sorts of victims. And so if you get your wish and you get it translated into this well-established international criminal precedent of issue and the robust system of prosecuting it, how would you then avoid it being captured and co-opted by these sorts of pressures that are seeking to use it because motion motion is subject in order to fulfil sort of political interventionist goals mm-hmm. rather than actually serving the victims. Sorry, that's a very, yeah. very long question. Very, very, very good question. <laughs> yeah. Is there anyone behind here? Yeah. Um, well, I guess this is building off of uh, your question as well. Um, and now I'm like debate on co-optation of sexual violence. So I'm, I'm more interested in like the actual label of war crime, uh, labeling sexual violence as a war crime. So I'm thinking of like Karen Engel's critique of government feminism and like yeah. the argument again, the argument or the critique that she does of like rape as genocide, and not not only how that has like not only how that can be co-opted and be used to justify military intervention, but also how it almost creates a hierarchy of sexual violence and it kind of mm-hmm. makes sexual violence in, in, in conflict removed from sexual violence that happens, you know, in non-conflict societies or in post-conflict societies and removes sexual violence from as something that is very much embedded in power relations and so it manifests itself in conflicts where power relations are not right. So I was wondering if you could kind of comment on that and whether like sexual violence, war, sexual violence as war crime is comparable to that critique or how that kind of situates in that. 
tempted to pass to you on that one. You've done more response. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Whether it creates a more neutral space in the urban yeah. or know. like where Dan started, the idea that it was, it was a normal part of the war crime. Yeah, yeah like, or, or even just that, I mean, I'm not arguing that like sexual violence shouldn't be something no. that should be prosecuted, but more and more just in like the political yeah. implications and the long term implications, not just in terms of qualification, but also in terms of sexual violence generally, how that affects. Well, if you look at it as a war crime, then it, it does take it out of the exceptional space. And going back to what Susie was asking before about domestic militaries having to look at their own, you know, whether they their their training in militaries appropriately, I guess, is in that, in that sense there is maybe something about labeling this within war crimes. I mean, because it's in, one of the things that happens is this becomes the exceptional actor. Certainly, when you're looking at um, um, looking within the home state and how then who's um, if the, even if they are prosecuting as an example so you're gay where there's not only unwillingness to kind of claim all oh, where we, we are prosecuting this when it happens but if it is visible it's exceptionalised this is a couple of rogue individual actors it's not connected to military culture per se so maybe it speaks to that component in particular I, see, I mean it, it's one of the things that's worried me about PSVI all the way through that PSVI is very much a, um, an expression of UK foreign policy, that UK is going to um, lead the way in ensuring prosecutions, etc., um, of sexual violence elsewhere. We have, what is it, 6% or 8% now conviction rate of rapes that get actually to court in this country. And so somehow, you know, by putting it all into foreign policy, and what a great job we're doing, it detracts completely mm. away from, you know, complete failure, as far as I'm concerned, of what's happening within our mm. domestic, foreign, uh, domestic policy. And I think that's also all very much tied up um, with that. Um, I don't know the answer to your question. I think it's an extraordinarily good question. And it isn't it also reflected in what's happening in the ICC, for example? I mean, the major criticism of the ICC from um, African countries is that it's essentially turned into a court for the prosecution of various um, African, um, mainly, mainly rebel leaders as opposed to governments, although there's been a couple you know, of governments, and is therefore, in a sense, um, turning this crime into something that happens in yeah. Africa, uncivilised conflicts, etc., mm. um, rather than being perceived across across the board sort of more generally. And I think it's very much, and how, he's also gone, yeah, but it links up with how do we avoid the politics of criminal justice and of prosecutions and focus on offenders, whoever they are. Um, when those who run the criminal justice system actually <coughs> those who hold the power. I think it taps into some of yeah. Phil Clark's work here, yeah. looking at how his processes are stalled as well, exactly. whether there's an assumption that evidence is being collected or there's already an indictment against someone that you actually need to participate in a peace process that aren't going to come because there is yeah. arrest. So, I mean, there's those aspects as well. I, mean, but then that's a I was just going to comment on, on, on Lee's observation about the significance of the other, and I, and I don't think it's something to be ignored, but I think what's interesting, particularly about the organisations you're talking about, is they're militias. And, and there is definitely a, 
a difference between the conduct of militias and, for um, a better phrase, organised militaries. Um, and, for example, there's a statistic that in the Holocaust there were uh, more Jews killed by the um, order police, German order police, than killed by the Einsatzgruppe, which were sent down to do exactly that task because the order police were policemen, not militaries. So they were, in, in effect, a militia. So I think there's certainly something around um, the significance of militias and uh, rather than disciplined militaries. And certainly that was certainly you know, one of my agendas working in South Sudan, was to try and make the, uh, help the SPLA become more professional um, because professional militaries, notwithstanding the fact they are far from perfect, as indeed societies are, generally speaking, do not commit the same sort of crimes at the same sort of levels um, as... Um Although in relation to sexual violence, I think it's Elizabeth Jean Wood's work that looks at how different, yeah. different groups yeah. and sort of maps differentiations around sexual violence in our conflict. And I'm sure it's her work that suggests that um, non-state groups that have a strong political ideology actually are less likely to... Apart from ISIS. Yeah, well, I don't know. Political ideology. But the way they have robust yeah. internal structures. Because they and, do. And, and, ISIS does have robust internal structures, apparently. <laughs> but, yeah. But, so, yeah. So, I think they are. I'm not sure included them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then, so, there is some interesting research around that. Mm. Yeah, there was a study in Africa, I think, came out of Sweden, I think, looked particularly at commercial So I think we've, we've run out of time, so I'm going to thank all of our speakers and thank the, thank the audience for some really great questions. This was a podcast by CISD SOAS, the Centre of International Studies and Diplomacy. Thank you for listening. <laughs>